Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. Welcome to another great episode of Inside Medical Malpractice. I'm so glad you're listening in today because you're going to love this episode. Today, we welcome back repeat guest, lawyer Maya Tomjanovic. Maya was only the second guest I ever had on the podcast, and her episode that's titled A Medical Malpractice Lawyer Has a Baby, which we recorded when she was on mat leave back in early 2020, was and still is one of the top five downloaded episodes of all time. If you haven't heard it, be sure to go back and listen. It's not only a great episode, it's a good story. And Maya has some wisdom to share with everyone, with lawyers, doctors, nurses, patients, young mothers, and everyone who's ever been or will be in the hospital. In that episode, we learned about Maya's first pregnancy, that at about 34 weeks gestation, there was a night when the baby wasn't moving as much as normal, which led her to go to the hospital for assessment. Luckily, the baby was fine at the time, but ultrasound revealed that the umbilical cord was wrapped twice around the neck. This is not an uncommon occurrence, but it is one that can occasionally cause problems with both pregnancy and the labor and delivery. Maya was followed at home over the next few weeks with regular checks of the fetal heart rate. She was then induced at about 30, 39 weeks gestation. Her labor didn't quite go as planned. She failed to progress anything past three centimeters dilation, despite induction with quite a bit of oxytocin. The fetal heart rate developed some decelerations and off she went for a C-section. At the end of that story, Maya delivered a gorgeous, healthy baby boy. But her experience included a lot of worry. There were some feelings of not being heard. There were some moments which she described as losing it and some worrisome events that left her with unanswered questions, a sense that she wasn't told quite the whole story, but also some wisdom about how she might do things differently when her second baby came around. The important takeaways from Maya from her experience were to stay open to however things turn out, to be a strong advocate for yourself or have a strong advocate with you when possible, and to not be afraid to ask a lot of questions. Well, wouldn't you know it, earlier this year, in April, Maya had another baby. Another healthy baby, another boy, but also another set of somewhat complicated circumstances. So I've invited her back to share this new story and all of the new lessons that she's learned. Welcome, Maya. I am so happy you're here. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's absolutely my pleasure. So we're going to talk and tell her story in a couple of minutes. But before we start, let me tell you or remind you a little bit about Maya's awesomeness, because I happen to think she is. Maya received a Bachelor of Commerce degree from the University of Calgary Haskane School of Business in 2008, and then her Juris Doctor, which is the law degree, from the University of Saskatchewan in 2012. She then joined the firm of Cumming and Gillespie Lawyers as an articling student and was named partner in June of 2020. Her practice focuses on medical malpractice, personal injury, and professional negligence. In all areas, she acts exclusively for the injured party and their family. She's appeared before various levels of court. She's gained significant alternative dispute resolution experience. She's passionate about her work and she does not take lightly the responsibility of acting for individuals. She is literally one of the most approachable and friendly and kind lawyers I've ever met. And she's very involved in ensuring that the client's rights are protected both through her practice and through her work with the Civil Trialers Association. She's also committed to giving back to the community through volunteering with the legal education societies, coaching new students, sitting on the executive of the health law section and board of the Alberta Civil Trialers Association. <laughs> She's chaired the ACTLA Women's Legal Forum Gala on two occasions, helping raise over $60,000 for Calgary Drug Treatment Court and over $40,000 for the Women's Center. Well done, you. 
Thank you, Chris. <laughs> You're welcome. So let's get down to the story of the second baby. But before I turn it over to Maya, I want to tell you my version of Maya's birth story. <laughs> I mean, I fully understand that this isn't at all about me. But on the day that Maya's first baby was born, I happened to be in a golf tournament with her entire office and staff. So I was privy to all the inside tell that they had on that day. This time, on the day Maya's second baby was born in April 2022, I was in Miami. I was having lunch with my husband and daughter and son-in-law at this classic old retro diner called Jimmy's East Side on Biscayne Boulevard. I was right in the middle of eating this giant plate of hamburger steak with mashed potatoes and gravy and onions, which is my classic standard Jimmy's East Side order because it's so good. And my phone rang. <clears throat> Whoever it was hung up before I answered it. But as soon as I put my phone down, my text, my text started blowing up. And it was Craig Gillespie, Maya's partner at Coming Gillespie. And he was saying, Maya's in the hospital. I'm sending you a copy of her fetal monitor tracing. I don't think I like what's going on, but I want you to look at it and call me right away. I mean, there's panic. There's panic in that text. And I'm, I'm like in full-blown panic by this time. So I took a look and I also didn't really like what was going on. Maya was only 37-ish weeks pregnant. She's not in labor. There's no contractions, yet there were some fetal heart rate decelerations on the tracing. The type that are consistent with umbilical cord compression. So I called Craig back and I said, this looks a lot like the tracing from Maya's first delivery because I'd seen that tracing and I knew everything that had gone on. Like maybe the cord is around the neck again. This seemed unlikely but I know that it's certainly not impossible. I mean, about 30% of the time, the umbilical cord does get wrapped around the baby's neck and it causes absolutely no harm. But as I said a minute ago, sometimes it causes all kinds of trouble. Craig then asked me to get in touch with a lawyer from Toronto who's well, <laughs> why is laughing? Sorry, this was news to me. I didn't know about this until I spoke to Chris a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I know. <clears throat> so he, there's a lawyer in Toronto who's well known for litigating birth cases, and he has absolutely zero tolerance and no wiggle room for the interpretation of monitor tracings, period. And I knew this. So I sent the tracing to him and I talked to him and he didn't like the tracing either. So here we've got Maya in the hospital in Calgary. Craig is somewhere. I really don't know where he was calling me from. I'm at Jimmy's East Side in Miami and this other lawyer in Toronto all of us are worrying about Maya. All of us are talking about Maya. All of us are analyzing, analyzing her monitor tracing. And all of us are thinking that this baby needed delivered. And like I said, pretty sure Maya and what she just said had zero idea that any of this was going on. So we decided together in our infinite wisdom that Maya needs a C-section like today, not tomorrow, not next week. This baby needs delivered today. She should not go home from the hospital she needs C-section. And sure enough, within a couple of hours, I got a text from Craig while I'm standing at Max Cosmetics buying some new mascara because <laughs> I'm still in Miami saying that Maya was going for a C-section right away. We all breathed a collective sigh of relief. And the next day I got an absolutely lovely photo from Maya of a gorgeous, healthy baby boy. As much as we would all like to think that we had something to do with this beautiful outcome. In the, at the end of the day, I don't think any of us, in fact, I know that none of us had anything to do with Maya's C-section that day. What I think, and I think what we're about to hear, is that Maya probably did exactly what she said she would do with her second baby. She stayed open to however things turned out. She became a strong advocate for herself, and she was not afraid to ask questions. Eh. <laughs> Okay, that's what we're going to learn. So that's just my backstory and my version of the story, which I'm sure is not even factual. So Maya, I'm going to just let you take it away from here and tell all of us what went on that day. Well, as Chris mentioned, <laughs> she's absolutely correct that I had no idea who all was involved and what all was going on behind the scenes. But I have to say, it's nice to know you have smart 
people in your corner who know what's going on and are there for you when you need it. And um, yeah, I'll, st I'll start at the beginning of the story in a minute, but just with respect to the communications with you, Chris, and with Richard Halpern. So I was texting Craig. I sent him a couple of photos I had covertly taken of the tracing when the nurse left the triage room. Um, and, you know, essentially just wanting another set of eyes and what he thought. And he texted me back going, do you want me to contact Chris and ask her what she thinks? I'm like, uh, you know, I, I think I'm okay right now. Maybe later I'll let you know because the reality is that even though I did feel more confident this time around speaking up, I still have this personality where, I don't know, I don't like to ask for help unless I feel it's absolutely necessary and I didn't want to make a big deal out of things. So yeah, I texted Craig back saying, you know, just leave it for now. I'll keep you posted. I'll let you know if I want you to reach out to anybody else. I should have known that he would not do that. <laughs> And I love hearing that he did the classic phone call first, followed by the text, just to make sure that you see the text and respond to it. That's what he always does to me as well. Um, but I had no idea that Helpern got involved at any point in time. Uh, but I appreciate you taking time for your vacation in Miami <laughs> to review a tracing and get on the horn with him. Oh, man, it's the most exciting thing that happened to me that month. Maya, what are you talking about? <laughs> Just imagine if you were in Calgary, you would have been dragged to the Foothills Hospital. <laughs> I would have, yeah. And I would have showed up. I just want you to know I'd have been there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so going back in time, this pregnancy, no real issues, no real concerns, other than I was a lot bigger. I was a lot more tired from having a toddler in the house as well. And I probably complained a lot more than I did the first time around, but I was lucky that, you know, there weren't any complications. I didn't have to do the stay at home and be monitored by the home care nurse every day, that kind of thing. So things seemed to be okay. I knew I was getting a C-section because I was not keen on a VBAC. So C-section was scheduled for, I think, 38 plus six weeks. In my mind, I don't know why I was so naive about this, but in my mind, I thought, you know, last time I didn't even get into labor with all the drugs and with everything going on. So this time, certainly nothing's going to happen earlier than the C-section date. That's where my mind was at. I was confident. Work was busy. I didn't even really consider stopping working early because I just knew that the C-section was going to happen on the C-section scheduled date and everything would be easy peasy, <laughs> but failed to consider the fact that other things can happen other than just going into labor. So the day that I ended up delivering, I had a regularly scheduled OB appointment. So dropped off our older child at daycare my husband, Richard, and I went to the OB appointment. Actually, he just dropped me off because I think then, yeah, he still wasn't allowed to come into the appointment. So he dropped me off. Oh, because we're in COVID times here. Yeah. So I go in. I hadn't really noticed anything, but it was kind of first thing in the morning. And then the nurse is checking heart rate through the intermittent oscillation. And she kind of stops and says that she noticed a D cell and wants to go talk to the doctor about it. She mentioned that, you know, they'll likely do a non-stress test, but it's possible that they might have to send me to the hospital for more assessment. So she goes off, can't really hear the conversation between her and my obstetrician, but they put me on the NST in the clinic. And at this point I still was, I guess, <laughs> just ignoring what was going on and thinking, eh, it'll probably be okay. But I'm texting my husband being like, you know, there's a chance we might have to go to the hospital today, just a heads up. Um, the NST at the clinic was not very good. Like a lot of the tracing was not clear. So it was really hard to tell what was going on. It didn't look terrible, but it didn't look super reassuring. And that seemed to be the nurse's assessment of the tracing as well. Um, and, you know, the obstetrician came over, started talking to me and she didn't seem particularly concerned, but I'm not sure if that was just her trying to not scare me or if she truly was not concerned at that point. But I have to say, I think 
that I owe a lot to the nurse at the clinic because she seemed pretty adamant from the second she heard the D cell that she was not going to let this go. And my, my observation at least was that she was the one kind of pushing that there needed to be further assessment of what was going on. And while I was in the clinic, the other issue that came up is that, you know, she was asking if I had been feeling movement. And for the first time I realized that I hadn't really felt any movement that morning. And, you know, I'm very, I feel very fortunate that I had that appointment that day because I feel that if I had gone to work as per usual, you know, you get busy, often don't pay attention until you're at home laying in bed to the fetal movement. I don't know. Yeah, you may not have noticed that day. Exactly. I don't know when it would have occurred to me that, oh, yeah, he's not moving as he usually does. And, you know, I was lucky with both of my babies that they moved a lot when things were good. So once once she mentioned it, then it became very obvious to me. But yeah, I, I'm glad I... That's how that cord got wrapped around their necks, I think. <laughs> You're just busy little babies in there. Like that happens, right? It's crazy boys, I tell you. <laughs> and after they're born, they're just as crazy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yeah, so they sent me to the hospital. I had fortunately just packed my hospital bag the night before because I realized that I was leaving it a little too late and I should probably do that. So we went home, picked up the hospital bag, went to the hospital. I th by that point, I felt like there was a good chance that I would not be leaving the hospital without a baby, but I think my husband was still pretty oblivious to it. He thought we were going to be going for lunch that day, have some time off with no kids. So he still was like, why are we bringing a hospital bag? Um, Richard, honestly. I know, right? <laughs> Just disappointed he wasn't getting lunch. Uh, <laughs> so we show up at the Foothills triage and they put me on the NST there. That's when I started snapping the photos of the tracing and trying to interpret it, pulling it out of the drawer, um, sending it off to Craig. And yeah, I don't, you know, obviously from the work I do, I have a reasonable ability to interpret a fetal heart tracing, but I'm certainly no medical expert. Um, but to me, it looked like there was minimal variability. There were D cells. There didn't appear to be accelerations. So that was concerning to me. I still wasn't feeling any fetal movement the entire time. Um, so they sent me for the fetal ultrasound to do the biophysical profile. And once we got that, the maternal fetal medicine physician confirmed that the biophysical profile score was two. And so we would be delivering today. You know, there was talk of, you know, we have to check the OR schedule. Things aren't good. So we're going to deliver today, but it's not emergent, emergent. And so, you know, there was talk of maybe in the next couple of hours, we'll let you know. The triage nurse almost sent Richard to go get lunch because he was complaining that he was hungry. And literally, as he started walking out the triage doors, they're like, actually, no, we're heading straight to the OR. You don't have time to eat. Come with me. <laughs> so, yeah. So like that happened to me with my first baby, too. Like Rick got hungry. They always get hungry. I know. And they're just sitting around. He went down to the hospital cafeteria and they had to page him back. And it was tricky because, you know, a noisy hospital cafeteria at noon. And he's eat he still remembers he was eating fish and chips and like carrot, sliced carrots, which he doesn't even like. And in the hospital, it was probably terrible. But yeah, same thing. I had to find him. It's like, it's time. Get up here. <laughs> yeah, just can't sit still and wait. But yeah, so luckily, they luckily Richard hadn't left yet. So it wasn't as big an issue getting him back. But yeah, we went to the OR. Um, it was definitely a different experience walking into the OR this time. Last time I was so out of it. I barely remember anything. I vaguely remember seeing the light above me and being able to see some reflection in the silver metal. Uh, that's about all I remember from that this time around. And it wasn't like Jesus calling or anything, right? We're just talking about the OR. We're talking light. about the OR light, yes. Yeah. I did stop breathing, but I don't think I... <laughs> I remember that. Yes. <laughs> but it was interesting. So yeah, you walk in, everyone's just chatting about, you know, whatever they did that weekend, getting all the supplies ready, which 
I could have done without seeing the tools that they were going to use, but that's okay. Um, you know, joking with the anesthetist about the fact that I was a medical malpractice lawyer right before he's going to put a needle in my back. <laughs> so it was a very different experience. Um, but C-section happened, you know, reasonably quickly. Apparently there was a lot of scar tissue they had to cut through. So apparently it took 10 minutes longer than it usually would. Um, Emerson was born. He didn't cry right away. So I do re remember, you know, hearing the nurses being like, come on, make some noise. Your mom wants to hear you cry. Your mom wants to hear you cry. And they, my understanding is they had to do some minor resuscitation, but nothing too invasive or intense. And yeah, we were lucky that he was okay. But like you said, I think he actually had, my first son, Mason, had the double nuchal cord around his neck and then once around his shoulders. Emerson managed to get it three times around his neck. So obviously that was what was causing the issues and the biophysical profile score. But yeah, just can't, can't, can't go easy. <laughs> it has to be exciting, I guess. Right. And that cord, such a common issue with that cord. So <clears throat> I'm just going to back up with a couple of explanations because you talked about, for anybody who's non-medical listening, you talked about an NST. That's a non-stress test and that's measuring uterine activity or contractions and the fetal heart rate in the absence of contractions to see how the baby is doing. And also in the presence of fetal movement, because what you're looking for is as the baby moves, the fetal heart rate does a little jump. And um, just like if any of us started to move around, your heart rate would temporarily rise and then settle back down as you settled back down to stillness. The um, BPP, other biophysical profile, which you talked about, your score was two out of eight. What did you get two for, well, two out of eight or two out of 10? And um, that is what, depending on whether or not you consider the non-stress test along with the score of measuring fetal movement, breathing, tone, and the amount of amniotic fluid. What did you get two for? So this is where I realized that I did somewhat fail in not <laughs> asking all the questions because I'm not entirely sure. I think my assumption has always been that the two is for the amniotic fluid volume, but I'm not, I honestly don't know. I just remember they told me two. And this time around, I didn't order my medical records. Last time I did because I had a lot more unanswered questions. So, you know, I was thinking in preparation for this that I should have at least got some of the records so I'd have a better sense of what happened and what was going on. But um, yeah, I, I do know they said too. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got a beautiful, healthy baby. Yes. I mean, and that's, um, you know, that's the bottom line story. But um, it's really, I think, interesting that you you know, your knowledge really came into play here. I mean, even some of your innate knowledge, like packing your bag the night before you went to this appointment, right? Things you knew without knowing that you knew them, just you were preparing somehow. And the luck or whatever you want to call it, that you had an appointment with your OB that day and your little bit of, and the nurse who obviously performed her auscultation properly or just listening to the baby's heart rate properly to the point that she long enough or at the right time that she picked up a, a deceleration. And then the, cl the critical thinking of that same nurse to do an NST and to communicate all that to the doctor and not just say, oh, well, you know, it's fine. The, it recovered and everything's okay now, so we're not going to worry about it. So it feels to me like, you know, and me and Richard and Craig like to think we had a part to play in, but I'm 100% sure we didn't. We just like... Well, you, it didn't end up needing to be as important, but I will say I remember when prior to going for the ultrasound and Craig did text me and say, you know, I sent it to Chris. <laughs> I pretty much ignored <laughs> your wishes, which I was absolutely okay with. Sent it to Chris. She said it, you know, she's not extremely concerned, but it's not great. And, you know, if they don't say that you're going to deliver today, then you should take issue with that. And, you know, luckily I didn't have to be that advocate for myself, but I will say that made me feel much more confident. Like I was prepared to, if they weren't going to go to C-section fairly quickly and having you confirm what I was feeling, you know, certainly made me feel more confident in that. Oh, good. See, I didn't know that part of the story. And imagine if I said, I'm Richard Helford says so too. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, let's just see. How, yeah, two lawyers <laughs> and a nurse in Florida. It says, 
<laughs> yeah, like I'm sure that would have gone a long way to get you like in trouble, yeah, labeled as some kind of crazy med mal lawyer. So, well, thank you so much for sharing that story. And um, how did how did Richard, your husband, do this time around? He he recalls quite a bit of trauma of his own with the first, you know. Uh, yeah, I shouldn't laugh, but you know, when you're the person who got cut open, you're the person who stopped breathing. It's sometimes difficult to hear your spouse talk about how traumatic it was for them. But to be fair, seeing all that happen and having no control over it would be pretty traumatizing. So, um, you know, I certainly recognize that. I think this time was a lot better. He knew what to expect. For example, when they take me to the OR, they put the support person in a little narrow cutout in the hallway <laughs> and essentially tell them to wait there. And so the first time around, he was waiting for what felt like to him a very long time. I don't know how long it was, maybe 10 minutes or something. And you know, kind of wondering if anybody was going to come get him and what was happening. So knowing that that was the process, I think he wasn't as uncomfortable with having to wait in the narrow hallway until they got him. Um, you know, they asked, for example, if he wanted to pull the curtain down or he wanted to come around when they were delivering the baby. He knew right away that his answer to that was a hard no. <laughs> yeah. No thanks to that. Yeah. Yeah. And other than, you know, the initial minute when they were having to resuscitate Emerson and waiting for him to cry, like I said, it did go pretty smoothly compared to last time. So, yeah, I think he was a lot more confident going in. He now feels that he should impart his wisdom on everyone. So any of his friends that are having their first children, he likes to tell them all about what it's like and the whole process of going to the OR and everything else. So he's run with it. <laughs> I should have him on a podcast, really, shouldn't I? Well, you guys will have to clear probably a full day. <laughs> he has a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. How was your seven minute involvement with what went on there, Richard? <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I don't want to be too hard on guys because I know, I mean, on anybody who's standing by in an emergency situation, I know as a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, as Every as a wife, I've been in that a thousand times for a thousand different reasons, and it's terrible. It's much easier for me to get in there, hands on, do the stuff, be a nurse, even be kind of thinking clinically about it, than just standing there being emotionally involved and helpless and worried and scared. I mean, that that's a tough gig. So, no offense to the men of the world or the people who have to support someone in labor when things go when things even go right. It's a tough, <clears throat> it's a tough, tough gig. So is there anything else you want to tell us about the story before I ask you a couple of questions? No, I think anything else will probably come out with the questions. I think that's, that's the gist of it. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. I'm interested to hear it because <clears throat> um, like you hearing my side of it for the first time, this is the first time I've heard your side of it. But now that you're two more years down the road of experience as a mother and a patient and a malpractice lawyer as well, and now a partner in your firm, how did the increased knowledge that you have kind of shape the experience this time around? Well, I think I was throughout the pregnancy more willing to ask questions and to seek out information. Um, I think I was fortunate that the care providers I had this time around also seemed more willing to share things with me um, without kind of having to pull it out of them. So I appreciated that. But for example, my first delivery, as I mentioned, I stopped breathing after the delivery and they had given me something to calm me down because I went into some kind of shock. After they gave me that something, I stopped breathing and they had to bag me, but I never knew what happened. None of it was in my medical records, as I mentioned in the last podcast. And so I really had those questions completely unanswered. And this time around, both my husband and I were a little bit nervous about, you know, what is it that I was given that made me stop breathing? Would that happen again, etc. So I talked to my obstetrician about it. She arranged an anesthesia consult at the hospital and we were able to meet with the anesthetist there and talk about the situation. And while we had no idea what was given, you know, he was able to ask enough questions to deduce that, I was given the drug that killed Michael Jackson is how he described it as the only way people remember. So propofol. Yeah. 
propofol. Yeah. So he was asking, like, I had no idea. I was completely out of it. I didn't see anything. But he asked my husband a number of questions and eventually asked, you know, did what they gave her look milky? And Richard said, yes, I remember that. It did look milky. And that's how they figured it out. So, um, so it's nice to know that. Very scientific research you did there. Yeah, <laughs> but you found it out, right? You figured it out. Well, and it's nice to know that it's not, you know, a drug that I'm allergic to or something like that that caused the reaction. He said it's just likely that they gave me too much for what was going on, and that's what caused me to stop breathing. But he assured me that as long as you're in a hospital setting, it's not a huge deal. <laughs> they can get you breathing again, which they did, I suppose. So he was right. Um, but it also reassured me that with, you know, with a scheduled C-section or a non-emergent C-section, it was very unlikely that any of that would be necessary or would happen again. Was that reassuring to you? Yeah. Well, and I just was happy to finally have an answer because it was one thing that drove me crazy. I tend to become a little bit obsessive about these things and it really bothered me that I had no idea. Yeah, well, now it's you and Michael Jackson, baby. <laughs> I will say it, it was a good way to remember it because I often forget the name of the specific drug. And then you're like, just Google the drug that killed Michael Jackson, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, allegedly. I mean, that's a whole different story. That's the truth. Okay, so you're, you've asked more questions. And I think I, I'm really proud of you because that's one of the things that you wanted to do this time around, right? You wanted to ask the questions that you needed to know. You wanted to advocate more for yourself. <clears throat> and you said you're not so sure how you did on that, but you didn't have to, but you were prepared to. So yay. <clears throat> I think that's really, I think that's really awesome. Is there anything that happened this time around that you're just looking back and wondering what, what was that? I don't think so. I think it's more just, so for example, it was within a couple of weeks of having Emerson that I was reviewing one of our medical malpractice cases um, that is pretty active right now, a birth injury case, and realizing that, you know, a lot of the same things were happening in that case as happened with Emerson, a biophysical profile score of two, you know, reduced or no fetal movement, um, concerns with the fetal heart tracing, and just feeling extremely grateful that I was in a situation where my care providers were prepared to proceed with a C-section right away, you know, weren't suggesting that they induce me or that I go through labor or all of these things that could prolong the eventual delivery. So that's just one of the things that really struck me just because the two cases were so in line factually up until a certain point. Right. So your planned C-section probably, you know, was a good thing this time around hey, that you didn't, that you weren't all set on, or completely set on having a, <clears throat> a vaginal delivery and willing to go through, you know, induction, um, but that everybody was kind of ready to go with it too, that all the work that needed to be done was done. So good. So I, you also talked last time quite a bit about, um, the nursing and medical care, and there were some people and times where you felt that people didn't understand enough about your person. You suggested that everybody have a personality test, and we talked about the practicality or impracticality of that. But I, I, I do really like what you said. I just listened to it again a couple of days ago, and you just sort of ask that doctors and nurses, all care providers, take just a, enough time to kind of assess the personality of every patient, enough that you get a sense or understand or even ask, how much do you want to know or not know? Because some people are perfectly happy being oblivious to the details and just tell me when it's over. And other people like you and me and a lot of other people I know, and I think the legal personality in many cases, you want the facts, you want the details, you don't mind the tough conversations. How did that go this time? Did you get treated like you wanted to be treated? Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of it did have to do with me being more vocal about that. Like I would just tell my treatment providers, you know, the obstetrician that I was seeing regularly that I like to know everything. So please don't, you know, sugarcoat things. Just tell me what's going on. And I think, I don't know if it was just the personality of those care providers or that they really listened to me in doing that, but I do feel that the majority of the time, 
they were very objective in telling me what was going on and straightforward, which I appreciated. I guess it comes back to having to advocate for yourself, even in terms of those more minute details. It's not just advocating for whatever end goal you want. It's also advocating from the outset as to how you want to be communicated with what your expectations are of your care providers. I think that's really great advice, you know, and it isn't often um, or rarely asked of patients. How much do you want to know? So if you are that kind of person that needs to know or wants to know, I think that's a really great piece of advice to just say it right up front. I want to know everything that's going on. I can take it. I can handle it. I want to know it. It's not going to put me in a panic. I, I just need to understand what's happening. So that's a good piece of advice, I think, for anybody in a hospital or is there as an advocate if that's true, because like I said, not everybody wants to know. Right. Well, and for example, I wouldn't be surprised if there would be many situations like when I was in the clinic where a nurse would hear a deceleration and then perhaps just go straight and talk to the obstetrician without mentioning to the patient that that is what I heard. You know, this is what I think. This is what will likely happen. So even just having that additional information, her not just skirting out of the room and having a hush-hush conversation with the physician I really appreciate it. Right. Because patients get that, right? When you leave in a small panic and there's whispering out in the hallway, you know, you're like, it just raises anxiety. Like, what's going on? What's happening? So for the doctors and nurses listening in, um, last time you had a couple of shining moments and I thought this can help teach us all. Um, you've mentioned the nurse in the clinic, but were there other nurses and or doctors that just did a great job in this situation that you'd like to give a little shout out to. You don't have to name names, but um, I think behaviors or words or conversations would be really helpful. Yeah, um, the anesthetist in the OR, I appreciated him. He was very matter of fact, also lighthearted. Like I said, <laughs> when the nurse was just trying to make conversation with me prior to getting the spinal <laughs> injection, um, asking what I do. And I first tried to answer that I was a lawyer. And then she kept asking kind of the follow-up questions until I eventually had to say, okay, yeah, I'm a medical malpractice lawyer and I deal with birth injury cases. So heads up everyone. And, you know, he was able to make a joke about that and didn't get uncomfortable with it. Uh, he also, you know, informed me what was going on through the process. I don't know if I loved being told while they were cutting into me that that's what was happening. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> he told me that and I thought it was very odd. But, you know, after Emerson was delivered, he was kind of keeping me up to date as to what was going on, what the nursing staff was doing, you know, that they would be bringing him over in a minute. So I appreciate that because it is hard. You're lying on your back. There's still this blue sheet up in front of you. Can't really see anything that's going on. And you're just hearing you know, in the background, some of what's happening. So was that a small moment of panic for you? Uh, a little bit, like it happened quite quickly. So I think if I had had more time to register before he started crying, it would have been worse, but um, they were able to resuscitate him quite quickly and confirm that he was okay. Um, and the nurse, the primary nurse that was in the OR as well and took care of me just in the immediate recovery was also really great. Um, I just felt that she was taking really good care, keeping me informed of everything that was happening, what I could expect, how long I would be there, what would be happening next. So again, just people like me who like to know what's going on and get anxious with the unknown, it's helpful. Well, good. That's, um, I think everybody will be in healthcare will be glad to hear that. And I think it's, I think the key takeaway there is just getting to know each individual person enough as time and energy and the situation allows that you can uh, treat them and respond to them in a way that is best for them, you know, not always and best for the situation. So a couple of the things from your last podcast that I wanted to ask you about, one thing that you mentioned was the experience of your delivery um, as a lawyer gave you a greater sense of empathy and understanding for your clients who had gone through some experience that just did not go well. Has that continued and or changed now or strengthened um, over time since this next delivery? I would say just strengthened. Um, yeah, one of the primary reasons I mentioned that last time is just 
having reviewed my own medical records and seeing what was written versus what my experience was being very different. Um, you know, it strengthened my belief in what some of our clients have told us their experiences, what their experience was, even though it at times differs from what the medical record shows. And, you know, I think that it's extremely important to recognize that even in these stressful situations, even though the laboring mother, for example, might be somewhat out of it because of what they're going through, they do have very distinct memories and, you know, we have to believe what they're saying and not necessarily just rely on what is in the health record. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm, I don't want to say I'm lucky, but that's, <laughs> I can't think of a better word for it, but I do feel extremely lucky that both of my sons were born healthy. They don't have any significant health conditions and, you know, it just really hits home how perhaps easily things could have gone differently and the consequences of different medical care and how, what that consequence can be for a child and for their family. So, you know, certainly just having children alone, but having gone through deliveries that were complicated, I think just helps me to better understand and appreciate what some of our clients are going through. That's well said and a lovely point because my next question is at the, in the, in your other podcast, you also mentioned because of the difference in your experience versus what was documented in the medical record, it left you with a bit of a mistrust of medical records or the accuracy of the information found in medical records. Um, has, has that changed your approach to how you review records now in malpractice lawsuits? Well, the difficulty is that no matter what, we have to rely largely on the records because the vast majority of time, that would be what, you know, the medical experts, the court will largely rely on. But it does make me more cognizant of paying attention to anything that the clients are telling us happened and taking that into consideration along with the medical records. You know, if there is something that differs, making sure that's communicated to the expert so that they can address that in their opinion. I think it's really important. And I, th I think it should be the case that, you know, all of the evidence is taken into account and that's not just the documentation, that's the verbal evidence of the parties as well. And, you know, as an expert, I really appreciate that. I do. If, if I get a, sometimes it's a handwritten or typed um, three, five, seven, ten pages that the family has put together of their recollection and their concerns about what went on. And then the examination for discovery of the nurses and doctors and whoever else was involved in the sometimes family members and the patient themselves in the lawsuit. It's, um, you know, it's not like you are judge as an expert that you're judge or jury and you can decide who's right and who's wrong and who's telling the truth or not. But I always feel like it gives me a balanced look at what went on. And my approach has always been to, you know, even in my expert report or to the lawyer say, you know, if this happened, then this is my opinion. But if that happened, then that's my opinion. And it feels, it feels like balanced and and good to me it feels like ethical and moral and right to me as an expert even to see and hear all sides of the story and not to judge like i said um but to just say i mean the judge or somebody at the end of the day is going to have to decide what the truth is or what the facts are that are going to be accepted into the courts but i really appreciate that i do well exactly and that is the proper approach for an expert to take i think too often there are experts who, you know, will not account for whatever the evidence is that came out of questioning, will rely solely on the records, or sometimes, you know, take one account of what happened from questioning evidence and incorporate that into their opinion. But certainly, you know, I'm always of the view that if an expert is relying on anybody's evidence, to form their opinion, it has to be, like you said, if this is found to be the case or if this is accepted, then that is my opinion. That's good. I'm, I'm just giving expert opinion on a case, obstetrical case right now. And the stories are not a little bit different 
wildly different. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really the only approach that you can take, you know, is that if that happened, then that met the standard of care. And if all that happened, then, you know, here's my opinion on that. So, so that's really interesting. Is there anything else you want to tell us about your delivery? Because I have another question, a couple of questions I want to ask you, but it's kind of taken a different direction. I don't think so. <laughs> like this one, when you first asked me to do this podcast, I'm like, this might be kind of boring <laughs> compared to the last one because it was just so quick and <laughs> relatively smooth relative to, you know, being in labor for a day and then going through all that. Uh, so I don't think there's anything else. Well, and I don't think it's boring at all. I think it's like, I think like, I think it's lucky for lack of a better word. Like you said, it's lucky that things turned out like they did. I'm, I feel really grateful that things turned out like they did. I was happy to be even the tiniest little part of what went on. And I, like I said, I'm really proud of you for learning the lessons that you said you needed to learn before your second baby was born. I can just see a different level of confidence in you right now. And um, I think too, you know, when, the first time you're pregnant, you don't really understand what it's like to be a mother and you're, the mother bear instincts that <clears throat> are innate in almost all of this. So I, I know with my second pregnancy too, it was, it wasn't just, I don't want to bother anybody and I don't want to ask any questions. I, I want a health, you, you have such a sense to take care of that baby more, I think, than you do the first time around because you don't really understand. So I sort of see a different level of confidence in you that, or a greater level of confidence in you that wasn't there before. So. Yeah. I do think I came out of this one feeling much more sure of myself after the last one. You know, I had all these feelings about not having been able to deliver vaginally, feeling, you know, kind of crappy about that, to be honest. Um, breastfeeding wasn't good, wasn't good this time either, but I was more accepting of it. Um, so I think you're right. You just have a more, I don't know if it's relaxed sense of things, but you understand things better. You accept what happens more so the second time around, I think. Um, I do have one piece of advice for any, any <laughs> spouses out there. So imagine this, two C-sections, <laughs> having made my feelings quite clear prior to this second C-section that I was pretty much going to be done after two kids, and then being wheeled out of the OR as your husband says, so... Should we try for a third, a girl? <laughs> so to all the husbands or spouses out there, please do not do that. <laughs> that conversation can maybe be had six to 12 months later. Well, it's six months right now, Maya. So going to get snipped as soon as possible. <laughs> Sorry for sharing your personal information, Richard, but <laughs> that's the way it goes. <laughs> no, okay, that's fair enough. And good advice, all you men out there listening. So let me ask you just another couple of questions. Because podcast listeners include lawyers, doctors, nurses, and the public, this is a general question, not specifically. You can answer it if you want to about the labor and delivery, but I'd really appreciate your perspective as a malpractice lawyer. In your view, let's start with doctors and nurses. <laughs> In or break those apart if you want to. In your view, what is the most important thing that you'd like doctors, nurses, and or healthcare providers to know about medical malpractice law? I think that for most people, and certainly any of us who practice in this area of law, but even for individual plaintiffs, it's not something that's entered into lightly. And it's... You know, it's either the result of need that somebody's injuries are so catastrophic and there seems to have been negligence there. And this is, you know, the only avenue to pursue in order to be able to provide a reasonable standard of living and care that isn't necessary. Um, you know, realistically, there's, I know there's always cases that are pursued that may seem to have little merit, but I think a lot of it stems from patients who aren't feeling like they've been hurt. The number of times, you know, we've been contacted by people and they don't want to sue specific providers because 
that doctor was so nice or, you know, that nurse really listened to me and really cared, even if frankly, there's evidence of negligence on those individuals' behalfs. So, you know, I think one way to avoid medical malpractice lawsuits for medical providers is to really listen to patients and show that they're listening. Not only do I think that would avoid many mistakes that happen, but it improves the relationship between patients and healthcare. You know, I just had a conversation like that with a doctor yesterday, believe it or not, because, you know, I don't, I'm not a malpractice lawyer, but I have like my medical legal stuff scares people all the time. And so I'm just saying to him, like, listen, I, I could be your best friend. Not, you don't need to be scared of me at all. Like I, I do not, you know, I am here to help and teach and help everyone understand and just do better. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he said exactly that to me. What, what we were told is that if our patients like us, if we're just nice, that they won't sue us. And I said, there's an absolute element of truth to that, without a doubt. There's been some interesting research done by a health researcher in the United States, and I can't recall her name right now, but um, she played audio tapes of doctor-patient conversation, even with the words blurred out. It was just tone and timing of the back and forth between the two people talking. And the general public was able to predict with a 90% accuracy rate who got sued or who would get sued. So there is no doubt an element of people don't like to sue people that they like, but I so appreciate what you just said. Sometimes you've got a child who's got a lifetime of care and is gonna far outlive the parents. And it's just the financial need of how do you care for that child for the rest of their life, <clears throat> you know, without handing them over to a social system, which in some places doesn't even exist right? The social support systems aren't there. So I think that's a really beautiful piece of advice that you can be as nice as you want, but you need to also meet the standard of care and not cause harm. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. There's some people that I have that conversation with and I am encouraging them to put their personal feelings aside because, you know, there is something that needs to be investigated there, but yeah, certainly, certainly a huge element. And I think a lot of the times that we get calls where a lawsuit perhaps isn't warranted either because there doesn't appear to be a breach of the standard of care, but rather just poor bedside manner or, you know, the damages aren't there for whatever reason, but people are upset and angry because of the way they were treated. And, you know, it can lead to a lot of college complaints, AHS complaints, for example, or um, sorry, I should say complaints to the specific healthcare body. And, you know, that could be avoided with just some care. Well, great advice for doctors and nurses. Why don't you answer that same question for patients? Um, patients, and let's just say patients in the general public, what would you like them to know, the most important thing that they need to know about medical malpractice lawsuits? That there cannot be an expectation that physicians and healthcare providers as people can be perfect and can avoid all bad outcomes, that not every bad outcome is a result of someone's negligence. And, you know, I think people want answers right away. And oftentimes will put me as a lawyer and not a medical expert on the spot wanting an answer as to, you know, whether they were negligent. And we always indicate for the cases that we are prepared to investigate that we'll have to rely on the opinions of medical experts that we trust on whether there was a breach of the standard of care and whether that caused the injury. And, you know, we always say that we hope for the cases we investigate that at the very least we can provide some answers. And for a lot of people that is really what they want, but there are some people who are just so focused and, you know, have blinders on as to any non-malicious, non-negligent cause of the outcome that they just won't accept whatever they're told, regardless of the extent of the investigation. Got it. Yeah, I've been part of a, some with some lawyers, some situations like that. It feels like maybe that some of that advice was really good for doctors and nurses too. I want to just back to go back to that audience again for a sec. 
because what you said about patients, you're not the first uh, plaintiff's malpractice lawyer who has said exactly what you said, is that the first thing they ask is, I, I just don't know what happened. What advice would you have to healthcare providers after something happens? And it's not always, I mean, the healthcare provider's definition of a bad outcome and sometimes the patient and or family's definition of a bad outcome are about a thousand miles apart from each other. But regardless of what it is to, you know, what advice do you have for healthcare providers when a patient speaks up and said, I don't, I don't like this. I don't understand this. I'm not happy about how this turned out. How could healthcare providers better handle that situation to avoid and I think the bulk of what comes to you are people who don't have legitimate cases, right? But they just have a lot of questions and anger and disappointment and mistrust or whatever the situation is. What, how could doctors, or doctors and nurses handle that better? Well, I'd say it's just, again, being willing to give information, you know, debriefing with a patient, whether they ask for it or not, perhaps, before they leave the hospital as to what happened. That was certainly my biggest frustration with my first labor and delivery is you know, feeling like I had lost the opportunity to ask those questions because after all of that, I wasn't really focused on those questions in the day or two that I was still admitted afterwards. And I didn't ask. And then feeling like after there's no way to figure this out, you know, unless, for example, I wanted to file a complaint, which I did not want to do. But um, so I wish, certainly, I think if the patient ask those questions, want some information, providing them with answers and allowing for that process to happen where there can be an open conversation about it. But even in situations where the patient's not specifically asking, you know, opening up the opportunity, because I do feel prior to being discharged, if they had come to do my assessment and, you know, said, do you have any questions about what happened? I would have asked. It just wasn't in my mind right at that moment. I was focused on wanting to get home and have a shower as I think anybody who's spent more than a day or two in labor and delivery and postpartum wants. Um, so yeah, just being open to that conversation. And I think it is more difficult when there is a bad outcome because I know certainly, you know, for many medical providers, they will have the thought of potentially a lawsuit on their mind. But, you know, I think you still have to be open to providing the facts. That's good. And I really like that you've actually just handed out the words there. Like, do you have any questions about what happened? That question right there, I think is really powerful. So moving back to what you were just saying to the public, um, I think it's a good source of education. It certainly was for me when I started learning about malpractice. What defines a valid malpractice lawsuit? Because it isn't I'm mad, my dinner was late, and I, I, mean, I know I don't want to trivialize anybody's experience, but um, from your perspective, what defines a lawsuit with merit, medical malpractice? Well, it's difficult. There's so whether there's merit depends on whether you can prove or likely prove that there was a breach of the standard of care, so the medical provider didn't do what they should have done. Um, and that that breach caused an injury. And that is often a disconnect that people have is, you know, something can go wrong, but if there's no injury, damage, bad outcome resulting from it, then there's really no lawsuit because all you can attain through a lawsuit are financial damages. And those damages are based on the extent of the injury and the losses resulting. So, you know, near misses, I almost died but I'm fine. You know, those are situations where we say that, you know, while I understand your frustration or concern with what happened, there would not be a valid lawsuit there. The more difficult part comes in, in cases where there is merit and there are damages, but the damages are limited. Those are the tough conversations because the reality is in our system. And I think in most systems, the financial damages have to be enough to justify the cost and expense and risk of pursuing the lawsuit. So, you know, we always have to look at that balance and determine whether from our perspective as 
you know, we're obviously lawyers, we seek justice, but the reality is we're also a business and we can't just pursue every case we want to pursue without considering the financial viability of it. And similarly, I always say for the individual or the family as well, you know, you don't want to take on potential financial load, the risk of pursuing the lawsuit and then losing if that risk is significant and the potential outcome is not significant. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think that's some version of what every malpractice lawyer I've ever spoken to has had to say about that issue. Um, You know, sometimes it's a little bit different, but I think it's something a lot of people don't understand. You know, it's don't understand and nurses and doctors don't understand. So the last audience I'd like you to answer that question for, I mean, you're in a fairly um, elite, I would say, lane of law being a, you know, an experienced malpractice lawyer at this point in your career, and especially one that does a lot of focus on birth injury cases. That's a very tight niche that requires a lot of expertise. And I always think a lot of courage and other things. What advice would you have for lawyers and attorneys listening in about perhaps doing or getting into medical malpractice law? That it's not something you can just take on or throw yourself into without having the experience or without having proper mentorship. Uh, You know, certainly I've been lucky to have mentorship both from within our firm and outside of our firm from very senior experienced litigators in this area. And, you know, even at this point in my career, I feel that I have a pretty good handle, especially on the birth injury cases that I've had, you know, more experience in running those cases to the end. But, you know, it's still something that is so involved and requires such expertise that, you know, we will always run them as a team. And at times where it's a very complicated situation, you know, involve external lawyers as well to get involved. So you hear of cases or sometimes people will contact us or even other lawyers will contact us because they've been retained or from the individual's perspective, they've retained a lawyer to act on a file they've started running it and now they're getting ready for questioning and realize they have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Questioning a doctor, is not very easy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it's certainly can be very intimidating. And if you don't have the experience and haven't put in the time to really understand the medicine, you are going to crash and burn. So yeah, I'd say it's not something to dabble in. It's something that you need to be focused on and have the resources to be able to pursue. Great advice. And I think that's advice for the public too, because sometimes, I mean, before I knew what I know now, I sort of would have thought calling a lawyer is calling a lawyer, you know, but people think that about nursing too. And um, for those of us that got into sort of into very specialized areas, like don't put me anyplace else because I, I, I wouldn't do very well. And even, you know, emergency room nurses who I think, have to see and know so much, so much about everything. If a woman in labor shows up in an emergency department, they will literally throw them in a wheelchair and run to the labor and delivery department just to get rid of them. It's like, don't make me deal with this. I don't know how. So I think that's a really great piece of advice for everybody to, you know, find a lawyer who's got the skill and experience and expertise to do what you're asking them to do, or the confidence and willingness to ask for help in the areas that they don't need. So great advice. Great advice. Well, I think that's all the questions I have, but we've been chatting for over an hour and you thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about, (laughs) but I knew we would. (laughs) I know you're so easy to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love, I love your second story. And I, you know, like I said, I love my teeny, teeny, tiny little part in it. So um, congratulations on those two beautiful boys. As with the very first podcast, Maya is currently just in the last few weeks of her maternity leave. But um, every single time I've talked to her for the last six months, even as early as two weeks after a C-section, she's been in the office. I just want to say that. But she's going to be back full time at coming back at her work as a partner coming in Gillespie sometime late October or early November 2022. Is that right? Yeah, October 31st. (laughs) October 31st, 2022, Halloween. So in case you need a good malpractice lawyer, there she is. And like I said, she's an excellent lawyer and a very approachable personality. 
So I just wanted to say again, Maya, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you having me on. Don't let me come back a third time though, or I'll be proven to be a liar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call Richard right after I get off the podcast. <laughs> So you know what she just told me and everybody else? She wants a girl. Like get on, get on it. But I also want to th say thanks to all of you for listening in. Um, the podcast is doing really well, and I'm so excited to keep it going. If you enjoyed this podcast, please uh, like and subscribe and leave us a review. It's available on all the usual platforms. It's on our website at connectmlx.com. And for nurses in the U.S., you can listen and receive credits on CE Broker. Um, and don't forget that also in many jurisdictions, nurses in, in Canada and the U.S., doctors and lawyers can claim continuing education credits. So be sure to tune in and stay in touch. Um, goodbye and take good care. And we'll be back again in a month.